Hi, hello, welcome back to Girl You Haven't Heard, a true crime and black history podcast where we discuss things from a critical decolonial perspective, but most importantly, above all else, without the propaganda. Before we get into the podcast, I just want to remind you that I do have a Patreon that you can subscribe to. Subscriptions start at $5 and up per month, and it gives you early access to all content, and different tiers will give you access to different things. So one might give you voting privileges on the topics that'll be covered next, and the other will give you access to my workbooks, my notes, and it's more for educators, but definitely can be for anyone who just wants to learn more in depth than what is being talked about in each segment. This week, we will be discussing the Shelburne race riots, which are on record to be the first race riots to ever take place in so-called Canada. And whenever I say so-called Canada, I'm just saying that because Canada is not a real nation. It is one built on lies, thievery, the deaths of Black people, the enslavement of Black people, as well as the stolen land from all Indigenous nations across the country. So what exactly was the Shelburne race riot? Like I mentioned before, it was the first race riot recorded in North American history, which began on July 26th, 1784. It lasted for about 10 days in Shelburne, but attacks continued in Birchtown, also known as Blacktown, for at least a month following. To set off the start of these riots, British loyalists bombarded the home of Black pastor David George in Shelburne, Nova Scotia. Loyalist to me in this context, just it's a new variation of colonizer, but the technical definition is a person who remains loyal to the established ruler or government, specifically in face of revolt. Almost all, if not all, of the attacks done by loyalists were against free black folks, um, and enslaved black folks were not targeted in the same way, if at all. Now for some historical context, um, Shelburne County grew quickly overnight in the spring of 1783. There were approximately 10,000 enslaved folks who participated in the American Revolution with the British in an effort to earn their freedom. Now I briefly touched on this in the Africville episode. If you haven't listened, now would be a great time to kind of pause this and go listen to that or return to it after listening to this segment. But, but basically I talked about the idea of this whole concept being extremely backwards that the British government went to Africa, enslaved Africans, and then after years of enslavement and other problems that come with that, they told them that they would have freedom if they risked their lives on behalf of the same colonial government which stole their land, broke their souls, ruined, and ruined their way of living. It's something that's quite crazy to me, um, and it's obviously no fault on the individuals who accepted this offer. The prospect of freedom after generations of enslavement was too good to pass up for about one-fifth of the black population in so-called America at that time. By the end of 1783, there were about 1,500 black folks who relocated to Birchtown, a community west of Shelburne. It was the largest community of black people anywhere in North America at that time. After quote-unquote earning their freedom, these black people and some white people quickly realized that the freedom they were offered was not genuine, the freedom offered to them by the British Crown. The land that was promised was always delayed, it was always less than what had been promised, meaning that it was smaller plots of land or it was in poor condition so it couldn't easily be farmed. There was not the opportunity to make money off of having this land right away, which was kind of the whole point, right? You wanted to be able to own a plot of land and live off of it, provide for yourself and your family. 
After years of enslavement, many had to willingly enter into indentured servitude to individuals and to the provincial government of Nova Scotia, which at its core seems like another form of slavery to me. But basically indentured servitude is when you do not work for finances, but you instead trade your labor for food, clothes, and a place to stay. In slavery, you were also provided with food, clothes, and a place to stay. The differences to me aren't very vast, it's just slavery in a different form, a more Canadian form, where it appears to me more polite on the surface, but underneath it's the same old thing. Many were also kidnapped and then sold back into slavery in the US and or the Caribbean. So now we're just going to talk about slavery in Nova Scotia just in a more general sense for a minute. Um, so it's without a doubt that enslaved people were throughout the area of Nova Scotia. Like there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, and in the midst of the American Revolution, which went from April 19th, 1775 and ended on September 3rd of 1783, there were a minimum of 1,200 enslaved Africans who were brought to the maritime area alone. Slave owners in Nova Scotia started to feel uncomfortable and made them feel some type of way as freed black folks began to move into the area. So Birchtown was a place where freed and enslaved black folks would interact. This came from the fact that it forced, or on the surface at least, it forced these slave owners to really question what they were doing, both on a local and an international context, because there were a lot of slave purchasers and people who would sell slaves, you know, were in that profession that lived in Nova Scotia. So when upon, so upon these freed black folks moving into the area, they then have to look at their enslaved black folk or indentured servants and kind of make that comparison. Like there really is nothing that different between the two of these people. It's just, I own one of them and one of them I don't. And that also might've just been a frustrating thing because let's not forget that like, slave owners, you know, racism. There's a certain level of racist beliefs that you have to have to b carry out the ownership of another individual, another human being. So let's just not forget that it probably frustrated them that they could not enslave these folks that were moving in and giving their slaves, you know, brilliant ideas of freedom. Now, as white British colonizers or loyalists move into the area, the area of Birchtown, Shelburne, they became resentful that freed black folks were willing to work longer hours for less because it meant less work for them or it meant that they had to be willing to work under the same circumstances. Black folks were doing what they needed to do in order to survive and of course white people were going to take advantage of that, right? Like white slave owners or white people who just did not want to do any of the work for themselves but had the money to hire others and would purposely pay them extremely low just because they knew that they could. But due to racist beliefs, the loyalists, or white British colonizers as I call them, their anger became directed towards black folks, freed or enslaved, instead of being angry and frustrated with the British folks who were at the root of all of these problems. So you can see how that carries over to modern day, the narrative of they're taking our jobs. It's a problematic mindset that does not just come up on its own. It has a very long historical context in terms of social inequalities and economic inequalities. But black or not, 
Everyone was in the position that they were in because of British colonies and colonization. Similar as today, everyone is in the position that we're in because of capitalism and the poor ways in which the government chooses to govern the people, making the rich richer, the poor poorer, and causing that wealth gap to be greater. It's just like that now. So you can see nothing has really changed at the foundation, at the core. It just looks different as modernization has occurred. So I mentioned that the race riots were started by an attack on David George, and we're just going to talk about him for a little minute here. So who was he really? Like, he was a leading Baptist minister amongst black amongst the black community in the area. He had a very large following, and he wasn't really bothered by anyone in terms of, like, racist white folks or the government. No one really bothered him until he made the conscious decision to push societal norms and began both preaching and baptizing black and non-black folks just alike. George was someone who pushed the boundaries regarding racial segregation and racial hierarchies, and he did this by setting up his church in Shelburne rather than the heavily black populated area of Birchtown. He also baptized white folks, which was virtually unheard of at this time, black folks baptizing white people. And the baptism of a white woman was the spark which lit the match and allowed the the racial tensions to spill over. There was a white mob who got wind that this white woman was about to get baptized by George and decided to intervene by trying to drag her away. They were unsuccessful at making the woman leave the scene and they left threatening George. The day after this occurred, and after this occurred, the race riots truly began. So what actually happened during these riots? What did they look like? Um, On July 26th of 1784, there was a group of 40 British white loyalists, quote unquote, who stormed, demolished, and destroyed the home of David George, the preacher who we had just spoken about prior. They did so by putting ropes on the poles of his home and literally just pulled it over. This was the same group of colonizers who did the same thing to destroy the homes of 20 other black folks who lived peacefully on George's property. They also had hooks and chains, they stole from harbor ships, and they also came back with guns. So it was clear you did what they said or they were going to physically harm you in some other way. Many of the mob wanted to burn down these same homes that they toppled over, but the leader decided that that would be too much, that would be crossing the line, that would be unacceptable. Threatening them with violence and guns and weapons, that's not too much. Pulling over their homes, not too much. But burning it down, that was just a little bit too far. So they did not do that. After George's home came down, the mob grew exponentially as white people realized what was going on and wanted to join in. The size of the group went from about 40 to hundreds very quickly. So it was a lot of angry white people in a densely populated area of black people and they're mad so there's nothing good that can come from this situation so as they continued throughout Shelburne they would pull black people out of their homes beat them and force them to leave many went to Birchtown with limited items some of them were able to grab some things but the rest was often stolen or destroyed by the mob that had pulled them out of their home Birchtown at this time was absolute chaos. About half of the freed black people in the area lived in Shelburne as work was easiest to find there. You know, the work that we were talking about before, which, you know, made the mobs angry in the first place. 
Once folks who lived in Shelburne were chased out, Birchtown's population doubled literally overnight. There were several hundreds there were several hundred displaced folks who were forced to live on other small lots which had been given to other families. All of the land surrounding Birchtown was already under white ownership for farms and churches, so the newcomers were unable to establish a place to stay of their own. Black people remained the main targets of frustration, but some folks who were also clearly working very closely with the British government were targeted as well. A man named Marston was the one they were trying to find the mob on the same night as they wanted to hang him as they felt he was responsible for the slow delivery of the land that they were promised. He was warned by friends and was eventually able to escape before the mob had found him and caused him any harm. White colonizers took any and every opportunity to lash out after the first incident popped off. No amount of violence solved their anger or solved their problems, and so they remained unsatisfied and boiling over in frustration. One account of these riots stated that a couple thousand white folks got together with weapons and drove as many black people out of town as they could. Attacks continued on people in Shelburne, but these folks were also now going out of their way to Birchtown so that they would be able to have a target of their rage as they had run all of the black people out of Shelburne, or almost all. They continued to drag people out of their homes and beat them. They would beat up black people who were just traveling alone some on dark roads, sometimes in the middle of the day, just whenever they felt like it. And they continued to pull down buildings and assault people when they were not expecting it. Riots and attacks came to a halt, at least publicly. I don't think it would be unfair to assume that the attacks continued, but were just more low-key after that. They didn't attract such big groups as they didn't want to draw too much attention for, to themselves when they knew that real trouble would be on the line. Historically, what's documented is that the riots and attacks came to a halt after the British government brought in their troops to scare the white loyalists or colonizers back in line. So what were some of the impacts after the initial intense riot began? I want to make it clear that these attacks did not deter or stop David from continuing his work. He was still determined to do what he wanted to do. This is we're talking about the preacher from before. So they did not deter the pastor from stopping his work, but for his own safety he did leave Shelburne and relocate to Birchtown um, and he received threats consistently. They were they never stopped since that time that the riots began with pulling over his home um, but still he would persevere and he was determined to make the best life for himself possible and we will get back to that later on. So the riots had an immediate impact on Nova Scotia and the way that Nova Scotians white Nova Scotians and the government would interact with black people going forward on both a large and a small scale. Many freed black folks were relocated to other parts of the province as racial tensions in Shelburne and Birchtown became too intense to handle. On the government's behalf, they could not control what would go on and that would make them nervous. 
the same way that they would go on and feel nervous about the fact that they had no control in Africville. Again, if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly, highly recommend it. It kind of showed, it kind of discusses what was able to happen because of these riots, what they set the stage for, what they set precedent for in terms of racial treatment of Black folks in Nova Scotia. So I mentioned briefly before about Marston, the politician, and basically he was turned over by Governor Parr because he needed a scapegoat. He was kind of at a loss for how much the loyalists just did not care to listen to any rules. They did not care to stop the attacks. And it reflected badly on him and his administration. And that was the last thing that you want as a governor. So... He needed a scapegoat and he used Marston. Marston had previously been accused of taking bribes, which made him an easy target, made him an easy person to throw blame on. And he was quickly fired, which explains why they wanted to hang him, why they believed that it was his fault that their land would continue to be delayed. And the overall surveying and land dispersal was taken over by the associates, a council of leaders who developed the area of Port Roseway, which basically just meant that Black people would be left out of the distribution of the remaining land. Money, financial, or tangible supports were never given to those who were beaten and dragged out of their homes and away from their properties. Governor Parr did not care about helping anyone who had been targeted. He simply wanted to make the white people happy so he could maintain control and wouldn't look bad to his peers or colleagues. Black people were not taken into consideration. This was simply a very selfish move on his part so that he would not lose any of the credibility he felt that he had gained over his during his time in Parliament. In 1791, British gave Birchtown residents the option of going overseas and creating a new colony in Sierra Leone. The economy had began to deteriorate within a couple of years of the riots. Problems like that, I guess, don't do well with colonizer money as it makes them look unstable. And many black people had completely left the town or the province, meaning that the cheap labor that they had begun accustomed to was getting increasingly more difficult to find, which just made the cost of living for everybody go up a lot higher. At least half of the town immediately agreed to leave and go overseas to create this new colony. There was an uncertain future on a continent their ancestors were stolen from that was preferred to the conditions they were facing in Shelburne. George had left the pastor we were speaking about earlier, as well as many significant leaders, teachers, and religious organizers. And once they signed up to make that move, many followed because they trusted their leadership, they trusted their guidance, and they also believed that whatever was back home in Africa originally came from would be better than anything that Canada or America had to offer them. And for many of them, they would be right. But if you'd like, there can be a segment all about this town, this new colony that was created. Um, just vote. If you're on Spotify, you can vote and let me know if you would like an episode on. And you can let me know if you would like to learn more about this new colony that was created in 1971. Um, so what does Shelburne and Birchtown look like now? The town has approximately 225 Black Nova Scotians who live in Birchtown and surrounding areas. 
The town is also home to the Black Loyalist Heritage Center. It is a 10,000 square foot museum dedicated to telling African history in the context of Canadian colonial borders. And now we're just going to talk a little bit more about that Heritage Center because I think it's very important and if you are looking to get more of information about the race riots and about black loyalists and enslavement and all of those things that took place in Nova Scotia during this time, it would be a great idea to learn more about this Heritage Center and eventually go and visit if you are able to. So the center tells the story of the world's largest free African population outside of Africa in the late 18th century in Nova Scotia. You can see the Black Loyalist journey from Africa to enslavement in American and Canadian colonies, then to Nova Scotia, and for many, back to Africa. They have archaeological evidence and artifacts confirming the stories that are told throughout the center are true, which I found to be really interesting. As often with Black history, especially Black history in the context of Canada, it can be hard to find a lot of physical, tangible proof to back up the oral history that is shared, especially when it comes to slavery and things of that nature which were denied to even have occurred in Canada for I don't even know how long, hundreds of years. You can visit the center and also the historic buildings and national monument which commemorates the Black Loyalist landing in Birchtown in 1783. You can also see a virtual copy of Carleton's Book of Negroes. You can look for some of your ancestors who may have been a part of the journey. And for those who don't know, the Book of Negroes is a written record of all of the Black people who entered Canada in 1782. This came after the Britain and American colonies ended civil war by signing a peace treaty which led to the creation of the United States of America as we now know it today. Part of the article states that the British couldn't take black people or other American property when, British, when the British completely left American soil. Yes, at this time, black people were still considered property and Americans wanted to make sure that their property remained their property. This book has a complete record of each black person's name, the name of their previous slave owner, and other details that would denote their value. Its purpose was to be used to pay the slave owners if later the evacuation from New York was found to contravene the previous treaty agreement made. So there will be an episode later on strictly about the Book of Negroes because there's so much to unpack about this specific document and its use and the language that was used within and how that reflected the perception of black people throughout this time. But by the time the British had actually left, there were approximately 3,000 names within this book. But now back to the center. Um, it is a beautiful property which sits on two acres and it overlooks the Shelburne Harbor. Their site states that there will be an immediate sense of peacefulness and knowing that you are walking in the footsteps of our ancestors. As the southeast breeze blows and acres brooks babbles in the background. The center is open and if you are able to visit now at some point in the future, I most definitely recommend doing so. That way the history can be learned straight from the mouths of those who have experienced it or those who are well versed in it. And as always, links can be found in the description to this site. 
of the Black Loyalist Heritage Center. So you can find out more for yourself and you can also figure out how it is that you are gonna go see it eventually. If you're just wanting to know more about Black history in a Canadian context and how that affects things more modernly, I would definitely recommend picking up The Skin We're In, a book by Desmond Cole, who is an amazing author out of Toronto, Ontario, and he discusses Birchtown within. There's also a lot of other very good, very insightful history that can be picked up from his book and 1000% recommend it for anyone and everyone who enjoys reading or doesn't necessarily enjoy reading so much, but there's a lot that can be picked up and learned from Desmond and his insightful way of thinking. Links about the book and where it can be purchased will also be left in my bio. So we have now come to the point of each segment where I discuss my thoughts about the information that we've just discussed together before. I have a lot of feelings and I have a lot of thoughts about this case. I'm also noticing that a lot of Black history is engulfed in Nova Scotia, which is very interesting because I remember in school, like I did not learn about Nova Scotia that much. I think it was the province or the territory I probably learned the least about which is kind of interesting considering that there's so much black history wrapped up in it. It seems very intentional. But as to the race riots, before doing this research, I had literally never, never even heard of this um, outside of Desmond Cole's book, of course. But it was something that was never discussed. Like the idea of, first of all, black people being in Canada at this time. When I was in school, it was very much like, not really a thing like most black people just immigrated here recently like no one's been here that long and of course i'm being taught this by white people who were taught this incorrectly by other white people so it's very systemic at this point i think the fact that the race were only considered to have lasted a week despite attacks going on in birchtown for over a month after that to me is also very systemic and i'm not laughing because It's funny, like nothing about that is funny. I have to chuckle because in all of the documentation, it's noted that, yeah, attacks went on for a month after, but because it didn't technically happen in Shelburne, we're not going to classify it as the same attacks. It's going to be different, and we're not really going to talk about the Birchtown ones too much. We're just going to focus on Shelburne. And I feel like a lot of that was done in an effort to make the Canadian government look good throughout this situation, because how do you have race riots go on uncontrolled for a month and you don't care about gaining control of those situations until your colleagues and your superiors are starting to look at you sideways like what's going on like what are you doing gain some control here and you're not able to gain control so you have to essentially bribe off the people doing the attacks and not protect the people who were attacked in any way shape or form that to me was extremely frustrating but again to be expected because of racism and all of those things at this time. It was also very interesting to me to look at the similarities, I guess, that occurred between Africville and Shelburne or Birchtown. Um, It was very insightful to understand what allowed Africville to occur um, in this specific context, in this specific place at that specific time. So like I mentioned, I keep saying go listen to it if you haven't, but you really should go and listen to that segment. Again, if you have listened to it now with the understanding of what took place before or listen to it for the first time because it will give a lot of insight and 
yeah, I think they're two very intertwined topics that are not taught for a reason because of how terribly both local, um, provincial and federal governments had treated black people in comparison to the babying and the nurturing that all of the white people, despite the horrible things that they were doing to black people. Also, this is just one thing that I noticed that was kind of ridiculous um, when we were discussing the mobs pulling over the homes on the property of the preacher, um, that they felt burning the homes would be too much, but pulling them over and stealing all of the stuff inside was not too much, but then at the same time felt that it was okay to try and hang Marston, the government official who had been accused of stealing and fired. And to me, it just seems like, okay, something has to be left out here because in the research that I was doing, none of them mentioned deaths. They never mentioned how many people died. If people died, I'm assuming they did just because of the nature of the attacks and how long they were occurring for, but it's not very well documented anywhere. And that also seems very intentional, very systemic because then the government doesn't have to admit their wrongdoings because, well, there's no proof, but they were the ones who were supposed to be documenting those things. So it's a catch-22, but I'm assuming that people died and if they were attempting to hang Marston, I feel like it's only fair to assume that they were also attempting to hang other black people if they did not. But again, not documented anywhere, just my thoughts, just my speculations. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this week's segment of Girl You Haven't Heard, where we discussed the first race riots to occur on Canadian soil, the Shelburne race riots followed up by the Birchtown racial attacks. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I will see you next week.